Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of That Was Okay, I Guess, a podcast about mediocre and or forgotten movies. Today's movie, I won't pretend we're not just shamelessly profiting off of the success of another far, far more successful commercial entity. <laughs> so we are going to be talking about the Chernobyl Diaries today. This is very different from the HBO miniseries that just got super popular and, according to Murph, really good, but I haven't seen it. It is but really this good. is a 2012 disaster horror film that we have now both seen. This is actually my second time seeing it, and I can say with 100% certainty that the HBO miniseries is much better than this. <laughs> Despite not having seen it. Yeah, like statistically speaking, even then, there's like a 100% chance, the like certainty. Yeah. <laughs> the trailer you watched is better than the entirety of this movie. I didn't even see the trailer. I've just like, you know, seen like five second clips when passing by, you know, like my sister's TV or something like that. And um, yeah, it's. Uh, <laughs> well, having seen both, mm -hmm. I can say that one, you're right. And um, I did not fall asleep during any of the Chernobyl miniseries. Oh, <laughs> and also Jared Harris start. is a godsend, even though yeah. he's being typecast as, you know, the dude who kills himself in things. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, spoilers. It, one. It's the first scene <laughs> in the series. It's not a spoiler, I promise. Uh, secondly, yeah, I am also pretty convinced that Jared Harris is a better actor than Jesse McCartney. Yeah, that's you know <laughs> former tween idol Jesse McCartney. You and Your Beautiful Soul, or whatever his song was. Um, I don't remember it very well. But nonetheless, I guess by default, he's kind of the standout in this cast just because, like, I mean, nobody sorta. gets anything to do when he's the only one that's famous. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> he's barely in the movie, though. Like, if you think yeah, about well, it. Everybody's barely in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> everybody's barely there. It's <laughs> barely a movie. Uh, so that's a good way to introduce this film, I think. Uh, Chernobyl Diaries came out Memorial Day 2012. It was produced by Oren Pelly, who was hot off of Paranormal Activity. And I think he also set up Insidious, that franchise, for a little bit. So a guy who's well-known at this point, well, or at least has like a good track record in Hollywood, mm. for taking low-budget horror movies, packaging them really well, and turning them into big profits. And even this movie went the same way. Its budget was only about a million dollars. It brought back 37.2, according to Wikipedia, uh, total box office. And that's a really good return on investment right there, if nothing else. Um, and so you can understand why Hollywood was impressed by Oren Pelly. They got him to do this. But the problem is there was nothing else about this movie that's even remotely interesting. Uh, it's just its premise and from there, it kind of goes into very, very average ter uh, horror uh, territories. Yep. That's the phrase I'm looking for. Yep. And it's really just not very good. Um, nope. Murph, do you have anything you wanted to say about this as the, at the beginning? Uh, no. I don't like this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I really didn't like it. Um like you said about the premise like i mean yeah it's in the air so to speak pardon the pun but the chernobyl stuff but <laughs> radiation I, I just i had such a hard time with this because you know there, there's such a public infatuation with the whole chernobyl thing it's it's 
like radiation it's sort of like i said in the air but this movie does absolutely nothing with that premise just like you said it mm. starts to like it flirts with it a little bit you know but the the only mm. thing that it really does is say hey we're going to chernobyl and then you as a member of the audience say oh well that's interesting and then it kind of leaves it at that like you get to Chernobyl, you see some, ooh, there's a spooky thing over there. I wonder, I wonder what Chernobyl might be like. And then what they show you is pretty much nothing. There there are hints of like what could be happening in Chernobyl and in the beginning when they get there with like their tour guide or whatever. And I don't yep. know if you want to go over like the bare bones plot of this movie before we get into it. <laughs> yeah. I can do that in about 30 seconds because there is not much. <laughs> I'll, I'll start the timer. Go ahead. All right. Um, so Jesse McCartney visits his brother with a couple friends in Ukraine. Um, they want to Kiev, right. That's in Ukraine. Yes, I, I wasn't trying to correct you. I was just, I was just saying. Uh, I believe so, but I don't remember the details that closely. Sure. Um, the brother's a bit of a risk taker, so he decides to take them on extreme tourism visit to Chernobyl. Uh, as they're trying to get out, they realize the bus has broken down, and there's basically no way for them to get out. So mm -hmm. they're trapped in Chernobyl, and they're scared, and you th you know, they think they're just going to spend the night there before they can get help in the morning but as it turns out there are more problems than that because there are just you know like radiated mutant people running around killing whoever visits i guess um and there's for some, some reason and then one by something. one well one by one they all die uh or no excuse me one girl survives but she's taken by doctors at the end and they throw her in a cell with other escape mutants or something it doesn't really make any sense so that's the entire plot of this movie yeah it's it's a big fat nothing like yeah, it's it, it's a nothing not it proves how pointless it is by the end of the movie mm -hmm. so one big through line that i think we're going to be talking about a bunch on this episode is that like it really does feel like this movie knows what it should be and mm -hmm. just doesn't do that and I think, like, the one big thing where I started to notice this, and there's definitely another very big uh, example of this that we'll talk about later, but the when I first noticed this was at the beginning, uh, at least, like, in that first act where they're exploring Chernobyl and they're just walking around and you just see, like, nothing but vast emptiness. There's some interesting and, imagery there. Yeah, like, you know, it's abandoned, like, it's suddenly gone, and, you know, like, there's a couple hints that maybe there's, like, something that shouldn't be occurring there, right? Like, yeah. You see, like, the, the dead dog and, and stuff like that, like, oh, well, this shouldn't be this way. Yuri, their tour guide, is saying stuff like that mm -hmm. multiple times, because they, they yeah. break into the place, like, they're not supposed to be there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, like, for me, like, the creepy thing about, like, nobody living in a place is, like, that there could be one person living yeah. in that place. It's, hey, what, and I think, what like, remains? Yeah, it's not just a good horror setup here, but it's, like, evocative imagery. Like, mm -hmm. they know what they're doing. There's, like, some sort of, like, tone and sensibility to it. And There's a stranger-than-fiction like, element about it, too, because it's, mm -hmm. like, this is a real place. And yeah. I don't know if they shot on location at all. Like, if not, the set design was pretty good. I mean, they found some pretty desolate areas. Yeah, uh, certainly no shortage of 
you know, economically depressed and possibly abandoned uh, locations in that region of the world. Uh, but that's like the one thing where it's like, okay, well, if you can dig into this in the other parts of the movies, you could have like a combination of like an okay sort of thriller and then like a pretty good sense of setting um, mm. that like definitely you know, like evokes some sort of mood or emotion in the audience. And that could have been good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like for a split second there, it had me thinking that that's what it was going to like end up being. At least the first time I watched it, the, sure, the sure. most recent time you, you I knew, knew what was coming. Um, <laughs> you knew but better. I mean, even the part where they're exploring the apartment building and the bear comes through. That's my like, favorite part in the whole movie. Yeah. I think that's pretty good. And also it's like, shot surprisingly well Mm -hmm. like the the camera navigates that building like well and that's all Mm -hmm. i ask for when you're like building like this tent scene or something like that and you you don't see it coming like it's more than a jump scare because it it doesn't feel cheap when you see a bear running through this place because it's like well i mean it's a wild animal yeah and there's a logic to it yeah, it introduces that element of danger that's there for the rest of the movie. And I mean, like, it makes sense. Like, yeah, like wild animals would probably be living in this place, like, mm-hmm. if it's safe now, but like, you know, had been abandoned decades earlier. Yeah. So, um, yeah, like, I mean, like, that's the one part of this that works for me. And it seems to sense that, like, it should be building more towards that thematically or tonally or something like that until it's, you know, second acts change into just like every other horror movie from this uh, time period. But the other big thing that I really noticed about like how it really knew like what it should be and didn't do it. Yeah. Is that this should have been a found footage movie. Yeah. Why else is it called the Chernobyl diaries? For one thing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. It's, it's, this should be, we should be looking at like, uh, what was that movie? Cloverfield. Mm -hmm. Very good. Very good movie. Yeah, that one's it's definitely not bad. Yeah. I mean, it was uh I guess you could say it was revolutionary for its time. It's mm-hmm. it had a couple of copycats after a while, but maybe more Blair Witch style, I think. Yeah. But well, uh, like, how how long did this come out at, or how long was it after um Paranormal Activity that Chernobyl Diaries came out? So Paranormal Activity, like I think they'll say it was 2008, but it really like hit theaters in 09, if I believe. Um, okay, so do you think maybe and, they weren't trying to replicate that kind of formula or? Uh, no, because everybody was doing this. That's true. Uh, at That's the true. time in horror, like there is a Wikipedia here. And so after the release of... Oh, Paranormal Activity technically premiered in 07. Whoops. Um, Jeez. But you had like Paranormal Activity, Wreck and Quarantine, Cloverfield, Diary of the Dead, District 9 at times, um, The Ritual, <laughs> that, Paranormal that Enemy, like The Last Exorcism, Troll Hunter, Grave Encounters, Apollo 18, The Tapes. Uh, <laughs> I, I had so to many ask the horror guy. Yeah, VHS Chronicle. Oh, I'm reading this off of a Wikipedia. Okay. Um, so, like, there's just, like, a lot of these that do this, right? Like, yeah. and it's huge for, like, those five, six years. And thankfully, you know, like, they're kind of done with, like, that as a trend. And now they just do it, like, when warranted. But this is definitely a when warranted movie. Yeah, I mean, they're and, on a vacation. Like, who's not recording yeah. this? You see them on their phones multiple times. When, when they get trapped in the van, which is where the movie coincidentally, like, just goes off the rails. Mm-hmm. More or less, like it loses all forward momentum the second they get trapped in that stupid van. Yep. Um, 
I mean, they're, they're, there's a scene when they all like leave to go get help and they leave. Um, what's his face? His character, just Chris, I think is the name of his character. Sure. We'll go with that. Yeah. He's, he's the famous guy. Jesse McCartney, I think is his name, <laughs> whatever. Um, he's, he gets injured by a dog or something and he's trapped in the van and the rest of the group goes out to find help. And then it turns out that they got attacked the people like Chris uh, and his wife who are still in the van, they get attacked. So when they return and the van is like in shambles, they see like a, a recording or something, you know, like there's the, the yeah. camcorder that they left where they have recorded stuff. And it's like, okay, yeah. so they found some footage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it just kind of makes sense that that's how this movie would work. Like yeah. it's, it's, I don't know. It's, yeah. It's got this weird kind of it's in this weird limbo between being like a more stylistic movie and then being like a kind of micro budget like found footage type thing. Yeah. And like part of it, too, is that like watching the promotional material, like the trailers and TV spots, like if you're going in, like thinking that this is a found footage movie, the trailers don't dissuade you from that notion mm. at all. Like it looks very much like this could be found footage. Like all the shots are like shaky when they're following people running and there's a lot of camera movements. And even like, I guess like the money shot of this one or like one of the big scare moments is when, um, most of the characters are distracted by a young girl who appears uh, at the fringes. They go to approach her and the one person who's, uh, who was left behind and wasn't walking towards the girl is dragged down a flight of stairs by another mutant. And the camera at that point is following the characters from one direction. Then you hear a scream and it pans back towards the girl getting dragged down the stairs. And I'm like, well, that's, that's found footage. Like that's mm. what you would do if you're shooting this in a found footage way. Like same thing with like the camera in the car. Like why would you need that there if you weren't setting up a found footage movie? Mm. Why are, why are you shooting it so that like you're looking at them watching the video on the phone instead of just showing us the video? It's like, uh, it's like intimate steady cam. It's really yeah. bizarre. And I mean, there's just so many elements here that like, really suggest that like yeah maybe this was supposed to be found footage and then they just dropped it halfway through for some reason when they realized they couldn't get all of the script they've to got fit some that. snarky french cinematographer no i will <laughs> not do a shaky cam the cinematographer was morton sauberg who is oh, so I was right that's a, clear, it's name, a french name danish or norwegian <laughs> um which means that they have no problem just running with a camera and shaking it all about yes um yeah, it's, they, they just dropped the idea somewhere along the lines and they didn't really fix everything. Like, they didn't take out all of the elements that it affected after they made the switch. And you have this really disjointed movie style-wise mm. where, you know, like, there are certain things that don't need to be shot in that style if you're not going to do a found footage movie. And if you are, you don't have to do things this way. So it, like it splits the difference. And even though like that isn't inherently a bad thing, like if that's going to be your approach, that doesn't mean your movie is going to be bad. It's just that like, in this case it's bad because they didn't fix the problems that they caused by making that late switch. I mean, it's jarring though to, to go to like scenes of like the entire like latter third of the movie is all of that. It's shaky cam. It's quick. It's frantic. Like they're running through dark hallways. Everything is dimly lit. You know, 
you have to wait till all the characters stop to take a breath before the camera finally focuses on one of them. It's they're just sprinting constantly. That's the whole end of this movie. Uh, it's mm-hmm. it's reminiscent of many scenes from other other found footage movies, and I, I'll admit that I haven't seen many of them. Cloverfield, I have seen, but yeah. it's rem- a smart it, choice not to watch most of them. Most of sure, them were bad. Sure, um, I've, I haven't even seen Blair Witch. So. Uh, Excellent, but yeah, thankfully yeah. It didn't spark that whole trend. They're making a video game, <laughs> a Blair Witch right. video game. Uh, totally irrelevant to this podcast, but you know, <laughs> if you want to check it out. <laughs> but it's especially because like the first half of the movie is so kind of cinematic-ish, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like it's like you said, yeah. it's pulling in two different directions. So the result is this kind of tonal not whiplash but it's jarring like the movie isn't engaging enough to give you whiplash but um <laughs> it, it just you don't quite settle into a groove like stylistically when you're watching this movie and it's just it's more frustrating than anything else because it'll it'll finally start to get some momentum going um like when when the older brother uh the other girl uh Yuri and all of them are like going out or what? Or not Yuri. This is like they think they're going out to find Yuri. Yuri was their tour guide, mm-hmm. and he was the first to die. Um, they're going out to find him. So you've got the two New Zealanders who I thought were good fun. I I enjoyed them. Yeah. Um, you know, you got the older brother who couldn't stand, and then you've got the other girl. They're going out searching for people. I I enjoyed the scenes of them walking around, like running into radiation pockets. Like oh, mm-hmm. we, oh we can't go here because there's radiation because it's Chernobyl. That's yeah. a thing you have to worry about here. Mm-hmm. And then they they stumble upon a um, a big empty parking lot, and they're like, "Oh, there are a bunch of cars here. We might be able to find something that you know can fix the van that's broken." Mm-hmm. Things like that that kind of have a logic to it that makes sense. But then mm-hmm. so quickly and so often in this movie, it just devolves into this rambling like found footage nonsense. Which mm-hmm. you know, not to not to discredit the genre in any way. Or or that style of filmmaking in any way, but it's no. You can do that. That's fine. Sure, I will sure. allow you to do that. I just yeah. <laughs> I don't know enough about it to to speak ill of it uh, mm-hmm. to such an extent. But it it is. It's just jarring to see them like trying to solve problems and there being tension inherent in the situation. Versus mm-hmm. there's a boogeyman on the other side of the door. Ooh, run! Don't show it on camera because the effects are probably really bad. Just you know, shake it a little, <laughs> scrub it mm-hmm. up, and then that weird ending oh that this ending is terrible i i like there is no way around that like i know i know it's kind of i don't it's not great to skip to the end so soon but it's it just it encapsulates everything that's wrong with this movie like you have this in insanely long like chase sequence which is the latter portion of the movie and then it, they cap it could off have been good just bland it, it could have been it could have been like I, I really like I, I hesitate to say that the, like anybody who was working on this movie was incompetent in any way. Like even the mm-hmm. actors, I didn't think they did a bad job. Like mm-hmm. there's just they they weren't characters. They're just playing to archetype. Like, it was just boring. Yeah, yeah. And but I mean, like you said, they're, they're the camera was pretty good throughout many of the mm-hmm. scenes, especially that bear scene we talked about a little bit ago. But the the end of this movie, it's like nothing in this movie kind of primes you necessarily for this mm-hmm. big reveal at the end that i guess there are there's this like group of doctors or something that have been i guess i guess caretaking for all of these irradiated mutant people yeah the ending is that, is that there's some sort of that? 
government medical conspiracy cover up sort of yeah thing and it's absolutely unclear in every single way what the implications of that are it's just that like oh some people are running this you know and like it's not even clear whether or not we're supposed to see that as a bad thing yeah (laughs) it's part of the issue with it too like if you're having a twist at the end of your horror movie it should be very clear whether or not it's bad or good and in this case like it's totally unclear like hey is isn't it good that the government's overlooking some of this stuff and you know like if there's a contaminated person like maybe they should go into quarantine yeah i mean of course you know like her being quarantined like yeah so bizarre Um, so yeah like it doesn't make sense it comes out of nowhere and uh, like not even in like a good way it's like oh that was unexpected it was like oh okay I I, di- I really didn't understand what was going on there at the end. Just like you said, it's fuzzy. It's unclear. There's not enough throughout the movie to kind of prime you for that. Like mm-hmm. you, when they first arrive at Pripyat, you've got the, uh, the, the armed guards there, the military people guarding the checkpoint saying, Hey, Hey, you can't come in here. And Yuri comes back and he's like, it looks like we can't come into Pripyat today. And every, and mm-hmm. Chris and his brother are just like, but we really want to. So then they go anyways. But I mean, other than that, like, what were they hiding? You had you had the the scene where, like, again, when they were in the parking lot and you see one of the vans was shot up. And then like that, that's it. And then you get fleeting glimpses at mutants increasingly throughout the latter portion of the movie there. But it's that never points to anything like Mm -hmm. the, the question you're asking yourself as a viewer throughout this whole movie is what's going on? And that question never gets resolved. Yeah. And it's almost like the movie doesn't care to answer it. Yeah. And yeah. And I mean, like, there's definitely like a way that you can pull off, you know, like, as we say a lot of these times, like, there's a way you can pull off that level of confusion. Like, mm-hmm. one of a big horror, like, I hesitate to say tropes because it's not like cliche. It's just like a way to tell a story is, you know, like, you throw your characters into the middle of something confusing and you reflect their confusion by withholding information from the audience too Mm. that's you know a way that you can make an effective horror thriller or mystery movie or whatever it may be like that can work it's just that like in here it's pretty clear that they don't know what's happening either and like if if that's the way that you want to write your movie you need to be able to clearly and definitively state at least by the end or with enough hints for everything else that's going on for the audience to figure out like what this is and what this means by the end of the movie because like it also has the effect here of just eliminating tension from the final act Mm -hmm. um that's obviously the way you don't want to go um you have to ramp something up like it doesn't have to be like it doesn't have to be different right like it can just be still people getting killed but either the stakes or the implications have to change just a little bit Mm -hmm. uh or at least something plot wise but here it's still just they're trying to escape they're all dying and that's it like it it doesn't change so they're still being pursued by the same people that have been pursuing them the whole time there's Mm -hmm. just fewer of the living people now yeah (laughs) it's just not a good like climax for your movie it's the same thing that we've been seeing this whole time yeah no and it's 
I, I honestly thought like you you consider the setting Chernobyl like the the mm-hmm. easy villain and honestly like it's the most effective villain in this circumstance the the miniseries did this insanely well uh, it's the radiation mm-hmm. so you expect that to I guess play a bigger role but in and I'm not saying that in this movie it doesn't play a role like it's significant enough mm-hmm. like why do you think there are mutants and all of that but <laughs> it's when you watch a movie about Chernobyl, you expect the radiation to be more of a factor. So <laughs> at, at the end of the movie, it's there. They, it turns out that they've been, uh, they wandered too close to the reactor or something mm-hmm. like that. Like they got too close to the, the actual power station that m- melted down. And, mm-hmm. um, the, the Geiger counters like going insane. Mm-hmm. And they're both like, they're both the two people that are left are that's Chris's older brother. And then the random woman, um, mm-hmm. and they're, they're clearly feeling sick and they're coughing and their, their skin looks all burned and stuff and no clue as to whether or not that's, you know, accurate, but it's like, oh, so I, I was sitting there at this point in the movie thinking like, oh, this is finally going to be a thing. Like mm-hmm. the radiation impacting our, our characters, like this is finally going to come into play. Like, oh, like I, my interest was peaked. It had been rejuvenated briefly, fleetingly. <laughs> Because I was like, oh, they're near the reactors. The radiation stuff is happening. Oh, man, I wonder what they're mm-hmm. going to do. Like, redeem yourself, movie, please. And the movie just sat on its hands and said, no, I don't <laughs> want to do that. We're going to kill these two characters. And, like, they both of them died, like, because of nothing that had anything to do with radiation. Uh, one got thrown mm-hmm. to zombies, and the other got shot by military police. That, mm-hmm. that, that, that was yeah. it. Just, yeah, uh, nobody even gets out of prep yet. Like it's just, uh, oh, they had a bad vacation and now they're all dead. That's the movie. Oh man, uh, can, can you imagine like what like a good horror filmmaker like like a Wes Craven or like mm. Ridley Scott would have done with that like Geiger counter motif that they've got going there? You, like imagine how they would use it to ramp up like the tension and have that be just like you know like the uh, the Jaws theme for please, this movie, please, just in that sound effect. Please, that would have been really good. Please watch the miniseries. Like I'll have to do that. You, yeah, Tucker. Uh, anybody listening, if you haven't seen the miniseries, like yeah, everybody is glowing about it again. Pardon the pun, but <laughs> <laughs> that's actually a good one. This time, <laughs> it's it's the reviews are, are everybody loves it, and you know it's getting all this attention. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, like HBO like redeemed themselves after the cruddy Game of Thrones finale. Whatever. Like, d- don't let it go to your head or anything, or you know, don't let it get. <laughs> overhyped or anything it's it's definitely not the best show i've ever seen but it's really really good and one of the best things about it is the way they they cultivate tension like the the way they set up the circumstances like it's it's not it's not 100 accurate like there are things that obviously they have to do to like fit certain things into like an hour of television and you know for it to be more easily digestible for the audience but Mm -hmm. It's still, it's really, it's, it's just scientific enough that, you know, the, the, the verisimilitude is there. So you believe what's happening on screen and it has just the right level of human incompetence and indecency Mm -hmm. to like, like it's, it's, you become hyper aware of how real this situation was. And Mm -hmm. so when, when you have for like a, a whole a lot of the tension in the show comes from the first responders dealing with the aftermath of this thing. And Mm -hmm. it's, 
like I'm getting goosebumps. I don't know if you can see it. Like I'm getting goosebumps remembering <laughs> some of the scenes. Like it's it's. Are you sure it's not radiation? Uh, no. Uh, I think honestly, part of the reason I haven't watched it yet is because uh, on IMDb's TV list, it is ranked as the number one show of all time, and that is a big uh, enough turnoff for me to just be like, hmm. It's it really something's going wrong here. It deserves to be like up there but i mean I, I, and i don't mean like up there is in like at the very top of the list but yeah it, it definitely deserves to be in the conversation as one of the yeah. best mini series to come out in the last decade yeah i was gonna say i can handle like oh okay hey this is like a truly excellent mini series and it's definitely one of the best of the last you know like however many years which means it's in contention for you know like one of the best mini series of all time like the number one tv show of all time period is just something that like makes me think that well, one, that that can't be true. So yeah. two, that like, there's something else happening here. And anyway, like, that's just the reason that I haven't personally watched it yet. Sure. I'm sure I'm going to watch the five episodes and think it's excellent. So don't let me dissuade you from thinking any of that. It's just that yeah. uh, I really do not trust the IMDb top list. Yeah, nor, nor should anyone. But, you know, Avengers Endgame is a better movie than Seven Samurai. And The Dark Knight is yes. clearly the third or the yeah. fourth best movie ever made uh, and Shawshank Redemption is apparently number one and I mean I, yeah. I, I like those movies no, they're, they're good yeah. movies they're really good movies but it's it's little it's like how many people like that movie that's it that's the only yeah, way yeah. those things get ranked like mm-hmm. it's it's the godforsaken rotten tomatoes effect that drives me nuts it's like did you either like it or not and it's like yeah you can boil movies down to that but you can't rank them because of that yeah you can't give them a grade because of that i don't mind the rotten tomatoes thing it's just that people try to extend it to like way more than it was ever supposed to tell you yeah like i think like on aggregate like the percentage of critics who gave the movie like a positive or negative review is like actually like useful for something right like it's a decent shorthand and then it just got extended for anything uh but the the problem is the numerical grade associated with it like it's and i I don't mean that that's what they intended for it to be it's obviously not what they intended for it when someone says seven percent movie is four percent better than an 83 percent movie this is scientific it's it it just means that four percent more critics gave it a thumbs up instead of a thumbs down it, it doesn't take into account their actual opinion on the movie. It's just, oh, they didn't hate it, so they liked it. It's like it, it's the critic, you know, lukewarm on it. Did they? Are they? Are they glowing? Or did they hate it? You know, did were they just meh on it? I, those are the yeah. things that I look for when it just it lacks the nuance that I kind of like. And I hate to yeah. say it because Metacritic is far from nuanced, but <laughs> it's closer, I guess. It. it it's, yeah i don't like things it, it being gives polarized you else. yeah like, it gives you something else for sure um and i think yeah you know like not to get too much into like the nature of like you know like whether or not you can scientifically determine critical consensus oh god yeah. um but yeah like i i mean it at least gives like shorthand for a canon for something that's being measured like sure. i know what rotten tomatoes says it just shouldn't go beyond that one thing that they say yeah and that that thing being um oh most people liked it or most people didn't yeah and, that, and that's, that's fine. yeah and that's yeah. that's perfectly fine but yeah. it's i also think the audience ugh. scores are 100 percent totally useless no matter what <laughs> like 
<laughs> it, it, that's not to say that you're stupid. It's that to say that yes. like yeah, absolutely, gotta get that it, out of the out of the way. Yeah, the uh, audience, movie audiences, especially during their original theatrical run, are incredibly self-selective. So the like the only people that are seeing a particular movie in theaters, for the most part, are people who think they will like that movie. People mm-hmm. who think they will like a movie are more likely to like that movie than people who don't think they'll like that movie. They're useless. All it tells you is whether or not the people who thought they would like it were satisfied, and even that is not a useful thing, because yeah. that only determines based on you know like how like what uh, marketing you are exposed to and everything like that. So anyway, anyways, uh, Disney- speaking of getting exposed to things, Chernobyl Diaries, <laughs> Disney pays Rotten Tomatoes. Anyways, yeah. <laughs> um, Chernobyl got an eighteen percent on Rotten Tomatoes from the critics uh, because again, this is a bad movie. But you know, standing out among this is that, especially I think if you look at like every single movie on that big list that I made that we talk about every now and then, it's an like, awesome whole, list. Everybody should go check it out. It's huge. Yeah, uh, follow me on Letterboxd. Tucker's, Tucker's list is really big. Um, you can also get spoiled about potential. Uh, future episodes of this um but one thing that stands out like even among generations is that horror movies are so dependent on like big pitches like this you know like hey this is the movie that gets inside chernobyl and i think to some effect like the miniseries had some of that in its marketing too you know like it's just got that like broad pitch um of like hey this gets you inside chernobyl don't you want to know what happened that it's it's going to be good. Trust me. It's interesting. Um, and this is more just like, obviously on the exploitative side than like the historical side of things. But like in terms of horror movies, like trying to go for these like big things when they obviously don't have that much of an ambition, like, or and even when they do, like, why are they so dependent on these pitches nowadays? Like when, you know, like, there, there's a bunch of different things there. Like, it's clear that horror fans can make anything um, a hit, sure. I guess. You know, like, The Conjuring didn't need to do it. Sinister didn't need to. Insidious. But, like, so many of these have these big, catchy pitches so that you can be like, oh, yeah, that's that movie. Like, uh, that's like, oh, that's the Chernobyl movie. Mm-hmm. Or, oh, that's the this movie or whatever it might be. And you see it so much more extremely in horror than you do for any other genre. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd agree. And like, I, again, like I, I always have to throw this out there is like, I'm not a big horror guy. Like <laughs> normally when horror movie, like say October's rolling around or whatever, and they're advertising the horror movies that come out at the beginning of the year. And then the horror movies that come out at the end of the year, I, my eyes just roll into the back of my head. I'm not a horror guy, <laughs> but and this this movie kind of like at least validated me on that a little bit because I was like, I okay. know, I feel bad. No, 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 <laughs> I'm no trying it's fine. to get you into it. No, I made us watch the Frighteners last week, so or last episode, and that that was billed for some reason as a horror movie. Um, but yeah, it, it's this is everything that can go wrong with a horror movie, I guess. It's you know, it's the Chernobyl movie, and it does mm-hmm. nothing with Chernobyl. Yeah. I'm not saying it like doesn't have anything there. to do with it. It's just uh-huh. it's Chernobyl is a passive element in the movie. It like affects mm-hmm. them sometimes when it's re- like when, when they just need them to go from one area to another. Yeah. It's an the aesthetic. The first half is Chernobyl. The second half is a monster movie. <sighs> yeah, the, the second half is like the movie they felt they needed to make. And then mm-hmm. the first half is them like at least getting it a little creative. Mm-hmm. but it's it's all fits and starts they they introduce stuff in this movie and then it just kind of 
goes away. Like mm-hmm. at the very beginning when they're still in Kiev and they're walking around and you see those three guys come up to the girls and they're just like, hey, you're women and we like those. And the other guy is like, no. And they, they like the camera lingers on the bad guys for a little bit and they, they you know, give those steely eyes and nothing. It's like, oh, are they going to run into those guys again? Are they in cahoots with Yuri? Like, as an audience member and a moviegoer, a frequent moviegoer, I'm primed to, like, draw connections between things I see on screen. I just, mm-hmm. When I see sketchy things, I'm, I, I think, oh, if the camera lingers on it for more than two seconds, oh, it might come back later. <laughs> no. That's, that's it. Like, oh, oh, it's, it's, uh, they get attacked by a pack of wild, irradiated dogs in the middle of the night. You hear gunshots. Interesting scene. Like, you know, everybody has to go into the van. The van's not starting. You know, uh, it's obvious it's going to happen because they need to get stranded in Chernobyl somehow. But Yuri and uh, Chris go out into the darkness and you hear the gunshots. And at this point, the movie hasn't quite fallen off the wagon yet. So you're just kind of like, oh, well, let's see what happens. Yeah. Oh, it was dogs. There were a lot of dogs later in the movie. Who gives a shit about dogs? The movie doesn't. Doesn't give a crap about irradiated animals anymore. I, I'm stuck between trying to like think whether or not the movie would have been better if it had committed to its pitch more or if it like just should have gone with a different pitch. Like it's not as if this movie ever marketed itself as like, Oh, this is a movie about Chernobyl and how it affected the people in it. It's, you know, like this thing about like, you know, like these kids going in and gas, like getting more than they bargained for whatever it Mm. may be. And it's like, well, that's almost, that's almost the natural endpoint of something like this is that it's just going to devolve into, you know, like any other sort of like not paranormal, but like mutant monster movie sort of thing where they're being attacked by humanoids or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. And like, that almost makes me think that like, maybe they should have just like tried to like pitch this just a little differently. I think that like, it's clear that people, uh, like extreme things in their movie screens you know like they like those sort of like fringe things like oh you're only going to get this in a movie and like you can still pitch that as a horror film by doing it that way but you can't have it be like the same setup as like the texas chainsaw massacre you know like it's like (laughs) this can't be that if you want it to be good and i think like this is the one time at least early on in oren pelly's career and not that I've seen every movie he produced, but um, he's got, still got a solid track record. And this is the one time where I think like a movie he produced was content to just be like, just be plain horror, like not worry about quality. Just say like, OK, this is our pitch. This is the movie we're making. You're going to go see it. Yeah. And, you know, the box office obviously like didn't dissuade uh, anybody from trying this again in the future. This is not a movie that failed by any means. It was just that like or at least failed financially by any means. It's just that it's not good and nobody liked it. So <laughs> it's objectively like people aren't going not to good. Notice, people aren't going to notice pitch similarity unless it is like specifically the same setting or the same setup. Yeah. You know, like this, this is still the Chernobyl movie. It is still self-contained in the minds of uh, most moviegoers. So this isn't going to have any negative ramifications. It's just that like this kind of, exemplifies why doing this like this is a bad idea and nobody else is any wiser. I, yeah. I, so 
the thing about these movies, and I'm I'm just kind of latching on to something you said a, a second ago, where it's you know these these are the types of movies, or the pitch for this movie is essentially, you know, the, the kids bite off more than they can chew; they get in over their heads, you yeah. know. And I'm I'm thinking of like other horror movies that I've seen, or other just movies in general, thrillers, whatever that I've seen that kind of have that same theme, but it's there's always kind of like a lesson at the end of those movies. Like there's for lack of a better word, there's like a moral to the story. There's like a mm-hmm. through line throughout the whole thing. Um, I didn't really get that in this movie. Like what's, what's the lesson to be learned, especially when you don't have a, a soul survivor at the end, mm-hmm. you know? So like, is the lesson don't go to Chernobyl because that's, can, a, that's what I got. You can pay to go <laughs> there. <okay> yeah. <laughs> Even in the movie, they, they recognize like they're, they're 100% willing to go. They paid and everything. Like it's a regular tourist destination, except for this one time. So I like, is, is the lesson, Oh, well, listen to the dudes at the checkpoint. I, I don't know. Like, I, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I just like wonder the, what they were trying to teach us or what, what the, what the characters, if they had lived, were supposed to learn because of this. Yeah. Uh, that's a good point. I think like, I, I think that I don't know if it went for either of those, but like, you know, like yeah. a message or like, um, like societal commentary and satire on like the youth of today or whatever, Sure. like it could have done one of those. And now that you brought that up, because I think this movie is definitely lacking that in a way that, like would have made a difference. I think Eli Roth would have done a good job with this movie because he, even when this he goes movie for, would have been yeah. grisly. Yeah. Like, and this oh, movie would have been so tame. much bloodier too. This movie would have been insane. Like, can you mm-hmm. imagine what those mutants would have looked like if Eli Roth had made this movie? <laughs> yeah. And like, not just like the fact that like his movies are like often like crazy and over the top and stuff like oh, that yeah. is because he has these through lines of, you know, like social commentary in it, and it doesn't always connect. It doesn't always work, right? But like, the, he's got something to say, and yeah. that alone makes a difference. Even as he's making these like big, like you know, shock jock horror movies, sort of thing. Like he did Hostel, right? Some, yeah, there was, I was just about to say. There's something in Hostel. I don't think it's a very good movie, but it's fine because there's something there. Like same with Cabin Fever. Like there is something to that besides the fact that like the horror itself is unique and stands out even when it's not very good. Like this movie needed to go for something. Yeah. And it was so content that like its pitch alone was good enough that they didn't think they had to make like like anything unique with the rest of it. Yeah, it's it's ooh spooky. Like someone, someone in in a, in a room somewhere just thought like, Ooh, it'd be spooky to go to Chernobyl at night. Wouldn't it? Ooh, I wonder what's in the shadows there. And that's it. Like that, that's literally it. Like you combine it with, you know, like you said, like this tropey nonsense and then there you go. That's the movie. And, but then the movie goes on, it gets all nihilistic with it and just kills everybody. (laughs) It's like, none of it mattered. And you're like, okay. Yeah. yeah, like if if they were trying to say something with that, it's very unclear what the thing they were trying to say yeah. was. You know, like you could have had it parallel the experiences of the Chernobyl victims, yeah. right? From the original thing. Like that would have been interesting. You could have you like had something to say about like the nature of, you know, like Western culture vultures, you know, like you know, like was like exploring these uh 
you know, areas where like terrible tragedies happened and, you know, like just using it for their own benefit instead of properly honoring the history or whatever. Like that and also could have been interesting. Government's callous indifference to the well-being of its citizens. Anything. Yeah, like, that too. Like there's like a few different ways you could have made this interesting you know like have it scattered throughout the plot uh, and the story and make something out of it and they just again if they did it's very very unclear that that's what they were trying to do let alone what they were actually trying to say yeah it's it's almost like the the plot of the movie itself like logically Mm -hmm. speaking like getting from point a to point b all the way down to z is like that part's still fuzzy so it's like looking for subtext and like below all of that is, I don't know. It's, it's a Sisyphean, I guess. It's, it's uh, I don't know. I, did, I didn't take anything away from this movie other than a sense of having wasted an evening watching it. And I, um, I apologize because you picked this movie, but it's, it just, it really wasn't good. And you you're not insulting that. me. You knew it. <laughs> sometimes the average movies are going to be more forgotten than average that's true. That's true. <laughs> this is sub sub average oh, yeah. um all right this is going to be a part that i edit out because i have one final like little conversation topic that i wanted to bring up sure. do you have anything else or are you okay doing that one and then <laughs> the uh the mini games after that no no i'm good i'm i'm trying to think i'm <clears throat> There was something that like I kind of wanted to ask. I can't really remember what it was because we we actually had a really decent conversation. I was worried we wouldn't have anything to talk about with this thing, but um, no, just like, and I know I keep saying it like you you were talking about how you were on Wikipedia or whatever, but you are the horror guy between the two of us. Yeah, and I mean you've been pretty much just lending pretty decent commentary. Commentary. Uh, <laughs> Trying my best. <laughs> yeah, no, you're you're doing great. I'm just I'm trying to I'm trying and failing to think of a way to ask you a question that would uh, poke at that a little more. I guess I guess basically what I'm just wondering is, you know, you you pay much closer one to movies. You pay much closer attention one to movies, but two specifically to horror movies in 2012 when this came out. That is when it came out, right? Like early 2012 Mm -hmm. had this. And again, we've already established that it didn't really commit to a style, but -hmm. it was advertised as having a style, more or Mm -hmm. less. Yeah. In 2012, was that already exhausted, basically, in regards to horror? Yeah, had horror movies already moved on, basically? So When when did did Cabin in the Woods come out? That was later this year? It was... That was either late 2011 or early 2012 um so that it was around the same time but you can see where i'm going with this right like it's because we're currently we're in an era of like elevated horror kind of yeah yeah mixed Mm -hmm. with that campy stuff like the uh Mm -hmm. conjuring series is still going on and i I don't know if the insidious stuff is still going on or if those Mm -hmm. are connected i don't know (laughs) but i'm just i'm wondering Um, about like your perspective on where this movie fits between those the paranormal activity era and then the get out era of like yeah. horror uh, so like this is firmly within that like that range of like the stuff inspired by uh cloverfield and paranormal activity and uh, probably more paranormal activity um especially considering that they have a producer in common True. um and i i'll say that like 
the found footage thing and like even if this isn't a found footage movie it definitely commits to a found footage style and marketed itself as that um so that's where some of its audience came from like it was grading to certain sections of horror like I'd say movie fans at the time, right? Like not just horror fans because like the audiences for these movies were still there. They hadn't totally gotten tired of it yet, but it was clear at this point that there were going to be more misses than hits if this is what they were trying to go for. And not in terms of box office success, just in terms of like whether or not the movie was good. Uh, you just had like a lot of movies that like were in desperate need of like a gimmick or a pitch and they mm. just went for the found footage instead of something else. Like now you'll see, you know, like with something like The Nun that was a pretty big hit last year um, in the fall, like that pitch was that like it's connected to this conjuring universe sort of thing. And that's not something that you could have done in 2012. It needed to be either like a direct sequel in one way or the other, but you couldn't just say it was, you know, like not like in the same universe, but like pitch it from like one movie and almost have it be like a spinoff. That's something you can only get away with today. And this was just like in many ways, like a rejection of that, right? Like not only the elevated horror that you see today in like Jordan Peele or uh, Ari Aster's movies, which um, I hear Midsummer is going to be excellent, by the way. Going to toss that one out there right now. Sure. Um, and yeah, like it, it's just like a rejection of like why are horror movies all look the same and why is that sameness kind of crappy? Mm -hmm. Right. Like the, I've seen a couple movies look good, even with the found footage thing, like Blair Witch comes to mind because of yeah. how specific that was. Um, Cloverfield honestly doesn't really look very good. It's just that the special effects were fantastic. Uh, but most of these movies, it was like, well, if all you're trying to do is like get like feet running and stuff like this isn't interesting to look at. And if the scares aren't there either, then this is a filming mode that's kind of failing the audience exactly and so that's why you see like jordan peele's movies be like so visually evocative and that's why people are like flocking to things like it follows or the witch or the babadook where the movies like any, specifically any look good. a24 uh yeah <laughs> produced horror movie <laughs> really that especially but like that's that why like, people are demanding their movies look good now mm -hmm. uh, especially in horror where i think is like Probably the most, like, uh, this is going to sound condescending, uh, the most, like, advanced film knowledge of a specific genre's fans. Like, I think that they're very up on, like, artistic trends and, like, when movies are being cheap mm -hmm. and, like, being lazy. And I think that horror fans get that better than, say, like, action fans do. So... Well, an explosion is an yeah. explosion is an explosion, you know? Yeah, of course. Like, yeah. Uh -huh. it's, it's all going to be loud. You're going to feel it in the theater all the time. Like, it's it all depends on what you're like. Action action movies are more about like tapping, tapping that adrenal gland. Like it just mm -hmm. it hits that and it's all about getting things going. You know, it's mm -hmm. you, you can watch a hundred and one action movies before you see one that's like really good. And even then, it's really hard to specify why. Like Mad Max, the the latest one, Fury Road, yeah, doesn't necessarily do anything that's immediately different than other horror movies. But it's like, and and most action fans who like enjoyed that movie, they they're not going to take it upon themselves to like pick apart exactly why it works so well. They just know it mm -hmm. works. Mm -hmm. Whereas like, 
You're absolutely right. I think horror fans, the, the second they see something on screen, they're just kind of like, this either works or it doesn't. And I feel mm-hmm. like more often than not, they know exactly why. Because with mm-hmm. horror, and again, I, speaking as a non-horror guy, mm-hmm. um, the most affecting horror movies that I've seen have been ones where I see something I've never seen before or where yep. they do mm-hmm. something different. And horror is a genre where when something different happens, it's immediately apparent because for the next five years, 20 other movies try to do that exact same thing, (laughs) you know? Yeah. And I think like, like just to cut to the core of it, I think that like the appeal of action movies is escapism and the appeal of horror movies is immersion. And I think that that like necessarily means that like there's just a bigger percentage of people in the horror fans camp that are like in tune with like, you like the artistry of a movie than there are people who consider themselves action movie fans. Mm -hmm. Like that doesn't mean that like, if you're one or the other, that you are necessarily like smarter or less smart than anybody else. But I think the, the percentage of people who consider themselves horror fans have like maybe like just a better overall knowledge of uh, movies than, you know, like people who are like, I don't, you know, like I've used action fans a lot. I love action movies. I'm not trying to self-criticize here. Um, But yeah, like, like generally speaking, like I, I don't necessarily see the same level of, like depth and complexity in like film conversations from fans of like, I don't like a nightmare on Elm street versus, uh, the DC universe, you know, <laughs> don't, don't open that can of worms. Yeah. <laughs> Please don't. So, yeah. This podcast has been paid for by Disney <laughs> <laughs> and in turn rotten tomatoes. Yeah. <laughs> we got a check from rotten tomatoes that had Disney's written on the bottom. <laughs> right on the memo line. <laughs> exactly. um, so the final question that I had before we head to the mini game segment, and this is something that just kind of interests me every now and then, because there's a lot of movies that are based on true events, right? There's a lot mm-hmm. of movies that are loosely based on true events. There's ones that use like Chernobyl diaries that use uh, historic events as uh, like a background, you know, like a setup, a pitch, etc. And one thing that's never been entirely clear is when you're talking about a tragedy, right? Like Chernobyl Diaries or United 93 or something like that. Titanic. Like definitely, yeah, Titanic. Like something that involves like real people dying. Hmm. At what point does it become like an unacceptable level of exploitation? When it sucks. Yeah, is, it, is that the line that we're going <laughs> to go with? If the movie sucks, like it's immediately <laughs> exploitation. It's... <laughs> I mean, it, I honestly like I it, unless you were affected by the tragedy specifically, I don't know how much like we can speak to it to be honest. Yeah, that, that, like, that's, a, that's an earnest answer. One, and I know, just that, but... like, like you know, like in I think we've mentioned this on the podcast before, but you know, like when you have like such a public tragedy, you know, like like nine eleven, like movies were like terrified to touch that until you know in the span of like two months, like World Trade Center and United ninety three both came out at the same time. Yeah, and it's like you know like. At a certain point, it's always technically exploitation when you use like a real tragedy to make profit for yourself. Like that's just by its definition, Mm -hmm. that is exploitation. But everyone, and especially in American society, is willing to grant like a little bit of exploitation if you feel that it's like, you know, honorable or whatever it may be. Like it respects history or what happened enough to the point where it's like, okay. It's got an in memoriam dedication either at the beginning or the end type deal. Yeah. 
Um, and, you know, Chernobyl Diary is obviously not a respectful movie uh, in no. any sense of the word. Um, and, like, I think for most people, like, even if this movie was good, they'd be like, okay, but that is exploitative. Um and you don't see that necessarily, definitely not anymore with, say, uh, United 93. I think that, like, broke the uh, threshold, I guess, for, like, 9-11 movies. Yeah. And the dividing line between what is acceptable and what isn't in terms of, like, real-life exploitation is just, like, never been clear. It's just that it's been so divided and most of the time so obvious, either rejected or accepted that like we don't actually know where the line is yet and that to me is interesting it is interesting i don't think honestly i don't think we're qualified to tease it out much further than just saying that it's interesting or it's interesting I'm probably not either i don't know if i have a theory on this it, it, but if you if you find one definitely share it but um <laughs> i mean it's i look at the inverse sometimes uh mm-hmm. and this is more just a way of whenever i it's it's a coping mechanism to deal with like any guilt I might feel if I enjoyed something that might've been like exploitative. Mm-hmm. Um, you look at the inverse, like we're, we're more than happy to watch a movie about, you know, a true story that has a happy ending, mm-hmm. you know, and honestly, like it might be just as exploitative. We're more than happy to kind of give happy movies a pass. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm looking at the resurgence of, you know, Christian propaganda movies and I'm yeah. I'm going to call them that because it's like that's you what can, they are. There's an academic definition of what those things are. That they are propaganda pieces yeah. through and through. Um, I don't I don't care if you've got Topher Grace in there, but yeah, it's so. Is it is it exploitative if say, you know, oh my god, I'm blanking on his name, but um, Black Klansman. Mm-hmm. Like, would that be exploitative in any way? Like, I mean, clearly people were, were, it, it, there were situations in that movie that are depicted that are traumatic for many of the people involved. Yeah. Like there, there mm-hmm. are stakes involved in that. Like lives were at risk. People were harmed. Mm-hmm. And so much of that movie is lighthearted, almost bizarrely, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. Spike Lee, right? Yes. Yeah. God, and, like, I, 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 kept, I kept wanting to say Spike Jonze, and I'm like, that doesn't sound right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's I, I that's think, her. Yeah. I, like I think, like you know, that movie at least like stays on like the acceptable mm-hmm. side because like obviously like like all like racism is a crime against like black people. Spike Lee is a black man, yeah. and you know, like like that. I think like people are willing to give, and I think like they should. You know, like if this is something that has affected you, you know, like mm-hmm. with um like. Spielberg's Schindler's List, for example, too. Like oh, yeah. th- this has a direct effect on you. Like you very much can tell this story because, like, it's you know, like it's yours. Like that is your history. Like that yeah. makes sense to me. With something like again, like Chernobyl Diaries, where you know none of these people are Russian except for the actor who played Yori, I guess, um, or Ukrainian or really Eastern European. It's like people who are unaffected by it. You yeah. know, it's like. You know, 9-11 movies being made by a bunch of, like, Los Angelinos, you know? Um, and that, you know, like, public tragedies for sure. Yeah. And, you know, like, it, it, they don't have the direct, you know, impact on the filmmakers. And I don't think that should be disqualifying for how you tell a story or who d- gets to tell a story, mm-hmm. for example. Um, it just, like, adds that element of 
whether or not people are actually going to accept it for what it is if they're part uh, or if they're not part of that uh, in group that you don't want to be a part of. That's that's actually nobody really, really wants a tragedy to be <laughs> to happen to them. That's it's an important distinction to make. I think actually that um, that it's not always up to the creator or the artist to determine whether something is exploitative or not. Um, it's a lot of that, like, again, like we, like I kind of said at the beginning is like, if it sucks, it's, it doesn't like, it just, it sours the experience outright, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. um, it, it like authorial intent doesn't matter at that point. Um, mm -hmm. but just to kind of rewind a little bit, like one of the reasons that movies like black, at least that I think movies like black Klansman and, and Schindler's list work so well is because of like that intent like they they had a mm -hmm. mission when they made these movies yeah, like, like, like they definitely exist for a purpose exactly the the circumstances are a conduit through which they make their point and it's mm -hmm. the point that matters not necessarily the circumstances which is why i can say something like you know united 93 which i like you look at the poster for that and it's you don't have this like this jingoistic ooh rah rah crap all over the cover of it it's just a picture of the plane flying overhead like yeah, it's yeah. it's minimalistic it's mm -hmm. I, I don't want to say tasteful but i mean it, it's it's mm -hmm. obviously it, you, you you don't see the towers and mm -hmm. i think that that makes a huge difference when you look at something like uh oliver stone did world trade center right with Nick yeah, Cage. That's right. yeah. Mm -hmm. um and i've never been a big oliver stone fan um I, I'm an apocalypse now versus um, platoon kind platoon. of guy. Platoon's the only one of his that I've seen, so I haven't really developed like an opinion of him. But I think platoon is great, G and I think apocalypse yeah. now is better. Yeah, apocalypse now <laughs> yeah. is a goddamn masterpiece. Uh, um, Francis Ford Coppola's last decent movie, but it, that is incorrect. But that's <laughs> something we'll talk about later. That's like, <laughs> okay. That's okay. Um, it it has a lot to do with what they're what they're trying to do with the movie, and I, we've said like at this point we're just uh, reiterating the same point over mm -hmm. and over again. Where Chernobyl Diaries just it didn't have a point. Like the setting was the point. Yeah, and that's it, it, maybe not necessarily exploitative of the tragedy, but definitely exploitative of the region. So it. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, part of this too, I think, like that we're struggling to come up with like a real like sure. conclusion to this too is that like clearly, no matter where the line is between like acceptable exploitation and unacceptable exploitation, Chernobyl Diaries does not come close to it. Like, not yeah. only is it just a bad movie, like it is clearly on its face disrespectful to what happened there. You know, like it doesn't yeah. make any sense. It's just using this as a marketing technique. Yeah, I'm, lo I'm looking at the poster and, right yeah. now. It's that big, like, gas cloud radiation symbol, yeah. like over the city. <laughs> Very realistic. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. I mean, it's okay. So it a lot of times, like, we're just gonna have to agree. I think at this point that you know. Ex exploitative filmmaking is like pornography like i can't define it but i'll know it when i see it mm -hmm. there's probably going to be like another movie where like that we watch later that's like similar and maybe it gets a little closer to defining that line or at least like sure. having a hint of like where one of the dots is on that line uh but chernobyl diaries like the thing it, it just never came close it never came close to being like like accepted exploitation and it was never yeah. going to with this premise this like these ideas and 
yeah, we could probably have a more like productive conversation with something that's like probably a little closer. If we ever talk about the movie World Trade Center, that might be one of them that gets close. Yeah, uh, not that I've seen it. So I, I have, I have seen that. It's, uh, I, I much prefer United ninety three. I but mm-hmm. I'm also just the kind of person that doesn't like all that chest beating French horn Americanism to begin with, but. <laughs> Spielberg, some French Spielberg. horning. Excuse me, it's a freedom horn. <laughs> uh, like I don't, I don't go to sleep with taps playing on my on my like Bluetooth speakers. But it's it's one of those things where it there's there's the point to the movie, and I'm just gonna like, all right, whatever. So let's get to the mini games then, and I think these are going to be uh, pretty hard this week, to be honest with you. Uh, but Murph, who is your MVP of the Chernobyl Diaries? My MVP is Yuri. Yeah, he's my MVP. Yeah, I could get on board with that. I I had fun watching him on screen. If that's mm-hmm. it's weird, like I don't I don't know if it was just because he was juxtaposed with everybody else or juxtaposed against everybody else. It's you know it it's if he, he first off it seemed like he was really Russian, and uh, he is mm-hmm. really Russian, right? Like the the actor uh, who plays him, I think, is like his name is. Uh, his name is Dmitry Dyachenko, who actually is sure. American, but his father is Ukrainian. Okay. Well, so he, he's a first-generation American. His family is Eastern European. Plenty of practice with the accent. It didn't sound mm-hmm. terrible. It didn't sound overdone. Um, yeah. You know, it's the way that Russians and Chernobyl and Ukraine and all that stuff, so like Eastern Europe and Russia has been portrayed in media, I'm thinking all the way back to like Call of Duty 4 like where you where you go to Pripyat and one of the missions there, um, and oh, all all yeah. the Russian stuff is so generic and stereotypical. I didn't get mm-hmm. the sense, even though he looked like a typical Russian jarhead in this movie, um, I didn't get the sense that something seemed yeah. to be happening in, inside of Yuri when he was scared. You know, yeah. I got I was I was scared for Yuri. Mm-hmm. I'm like, this is he's just doing his job. Like you know. I, I just liked his character. He's he's the guy who kind of he gets pestered into going into Pripyat anyways, and he does it because you know he wants some money, and he just he was believable the whole time. Mm-hmm. It, I, like oddly enough, like nobody, everybody mm-hmm. else seemed to be a character, and Yuri was just Yuri. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's he's always looking over his shoulder, and you know he's he's the guy who's trying to keep his business afloat. So when he sees mm-hmm. something out of the ordinary, he's like, no, 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 it's it's fine. We we are mm-hmm. we are good. Don't no worries. Yeah, like of, of the few reviews I read of this movie, because like this was not a movie I felt I needed to get like like outside opinions of. Oh, I sure. think this yeah. was pretty self evidently bad. Um, but I mean, like Disney's paid actor... Rotten Tomatoes. Like you're not going to get anything unbiased anyway. <laughs> Uh, the the one actor that like actually got some you know respect and uh you know praise for this movie was Dmitry Dyachenko and that oh, makes sure. sense because he was the only one who seemed uh to be acting really um <laughs> and, like when he was funny i thought it was funny like when whenever mm-hmm. he would drive over it would be like he's going to get a little bumpy and then the stuff would like the van would mm-hmm. bump and everybody would freak out and he'd be like oh yeah i'm still in control like he would just he had, uh, I don't know, he had a charisma to him that I just, I mm-hmm. felt was instantly endearing. You know, it's, it, mm-hmm. he, he showed the most range, too, because he was the, the stoic, you know, ex-military guy at the beginning who's going to take you guys mm-hmm. on an expedition type deal. Uh, he's mm-hmm. goofy when he's driving him through the thing there. He's lighthearted when he's mm-hmm. trying to break the tension. 
Uh, he pulled mm -hmm. off the tour guide vibe real well. I, when he looked freaked out when the van wouldn't start, he got freaked out. And then when he had to pull out his gun and the, everyone was like, why do you have a gun? He's like, you'll be thankful I have this. And it's like, whoa, yeah. he pulled that off. He pulled off the mm -hmm. line. He was an yeah, imposing yeah. figure. And it just, it, he had a presence exactly in the film. The most difficult role I've ever seen. But like for what Fuck the movie no. asked of him, he did it all well. And that's really all you can ask for. Yeah. And, um, and I was really, really disappointed that they killed him off so quickly. <laughs> I mean, I get that you have to, but I was kind of hoping that he would like disappear. And then like near the end of the movie, when the, the good guys are, there's like one or two of them left, you know, they run mm -hmm. into Yuri who's been hiding out in like the top floor of that apartment building, like with mm -hmm. the bear or something. I don't know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he like tamed it and used it as a pet or something and yeah. survived. But no, they find mm -hmm. his grisly remains. Yeah. Uh, so speaking of uh my mvp is the bear provided the, bear. the only tent scene yes. of the movie uh i don't even the know bear. if that was a real bear or if it was cgi i wasn't looking closely enough well, but regardless the let's bear is my mvp for giving us the only scene of this movie with some actual tension no yeah absolutely um it was a good effect it was a good scene it seemed like <sighs> It was like that was the point in the movie where I was kind of confused as to why the reviews were as bad as they were. You know, yeah, you, ever, then, you ever watch a movie that phew. everybody says is bad and you're just kind of like, oh, well, it's not bad yet. I'm, I'm starting yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. It was mm -hmm. long enough into the movie to go like, maybe they're wrong. They weren't. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But yeah. <laughs> turns out you need to watch the whole movie first. But yeah. and <laughs> hey, can we can we at least like throw throw this out there that this movie did take an awful long time to get to Pripyat and start scaring us air yeah. quotes for our listeners there uh, and it, i don't mind extending move. i don't mind extended intros at all but this was this is just boring no yeah yeah, yeah. it, it, it yeah, never went anywhere but and the, the characters were as one yeah. note as one note characters can be like yeah, i don't even think we learned his wife's name anything yeah we didn't get anything out of the characters except that like chris was ready to propose to his girlfriend yeah that's it yeah. one line of dialogue on the way to chernobyl could have taken care of that <laughs> you could have actually fucking proposed to her or something uh murph who is your lvp of chernobyl diaries <sighs> there's a lot of options aren't there it's this is actually really this might be the hardest lvp out of all the movies we've done <laughs> um i always take my time i know you probably edit it out um i do edit it out yeah and what do you mean probably don't you listen i listen to every episode um I, hey Why are we filming the, record the, what, what oh was God. what was his name uh uh the reporter for msnbc uh who lied about going down in a helicopter oh brian williams brian williams that meme yeah. of him i was there <laughs> <laughs> someone says anything happens somewhere in the world and it's just a picture of brian williams i was there yeah like i don't need to listen i was there but no, I, I always take my time to kind of, you know, think of think of an LVP. But with Chernobyl Diaries, it's like it's everything else, man. It's everything except for the setting of Chernobyl, because Chernobyl will always kind of have that mysterious quality. You know, that it's that that, that quality that makes shows like um, uh, Chernobyl. 
Yeah, but but the the show where um like everybody disappears overnight and then there's only oh, like a handful of people. Yeah, the following. Thank you. Oh no no wait my god not the following like I it's it's the leftovers. I oh, know the, what you're describing. Yeah, yeah yeah. I've seen the leftovers. It's one of my all time favorite shows, and I just like absolutely blanked and told you a different show that has nothing to do with the thing you described. No, it's, it's totally fine. It's, I mean I didn't I didn't know the difference. Obviously that's my malfunction, but um. Yeah, it's it's what makes the the premise of a show like that so interesting. It's like mm-hmm. it's you know what remains. It's mm-hmm. it's so it's like it's it's why I was patient enough with this movie to at least remain engaged until a little bit after the bear scene type deal. But mm-hmm. everything else aside from the setting and Yuri, it's just it's boring. It's mm-hmm. one note. It's it's not like the movie it doesn't even have any color to it like they're in a major metropolitan area and the only colors are gray and orange for for the street lights like it's just it's drab it's boring there's it's not stylistic enough to accomplish its stylistic goals and it's not grungy enough to accomplish that found footage crap it tries to do at the end yeah there's no feeling to it is a big problem like yeah well we've talked about that um God, and I don't know how I narrowed down my LVP either because at least you have a lot. One. Yeah, but I'm going to go with the mutant fish that they found the because that's supposed fish. to be. Yeah, when they're by the lake and Yuri is, yeah, <gasps> yeah. getting fake bit. The, the prosthetic the fish. Are they, the, There's um, also like a, you know, like a, a, mute, a mutated fish that's also laying there. And uh, yeah, they think that that's going to be setting up something scary that's like, oh, that's off. But it just reminds me of The Simpsons. <laughs> like, you know, you made, you made Blinky, the eight-eyed fish, that, or the three-eyed fish that can walk. Like, that's, that's from The Simpsons. Because that you was, have to do better than that. That was uh, a practical effect, wasn't it, that they did there? Like, that looked like a puppet. Yeah. That, that it, it must have been. It was, yeah. yeah. It, it looked, what, what do they call it? It, it just it looked, it looked cartoonish. Jesus. Uh, Murph, what is your rating for the Chernobyl Diaries? <sighs> One Ronkin out of ten. Jesus, yeah. 0.5 Ronkin out of five. <laughs> yeah, you know, for me, this is just like, it's not bad enough where i can just give it like only the one i have to say one and a half because there were parts of this that showed some sort of promise you you know they were all at the same place they're the same thing but like there was enough there yeah there was enough there for me to not like absolutely hate this this is a bad movie but you know like there's I hesitate to say there's some value in it. It's like there's some spots there's that aren't that bad. And it's not like, and they don't like, it's not like the rest of the movie ruins those scenes either. Like I some like would be like a one star movie for me. So yeah, this sure. is just like, this is a one and a half out of five. It is very bad. Don't watch it, but it's not a one star. It, it's, it's absolutely a, a half star for me. <laughs> like I, I, Again, not a horror guy. I'm biased slightly against horror movies. Like, I'm not saying that, like, oh, my standards are so high, but it's so often when I go and see horror movies, I am bored. And, like, when a, when a, scary, when a scary movie is scary, it's scary. Like, I'm not trying to mm-hmm. puff up my chest here and say that those movies don't scare me. Like, when a movie mm-hmm. is freaky and scary, the, those movies that everybody thinks are, like, normally are. But yeah. the... 
those found footage movies um with the exception of like cloverfield and stuff like i just mm-hmm. they, they didn't really engage me you know it's not like they made me nauseous or anything but they just, i just didn't find them particularly engaging and yeah. this movie had so much wasted potential with the setting that i just i it, it's it's an absolute nothing of a movie for me it left n- no impact i it's it's like nothing. It's it's just a nothing. It doesn't exist to me. So point five stars. Like I I forgot the majority of it the second after I I finished watching it when I had woken up and then had to rewind half the movie to go back and rewatch that. It's, Should we move on? Should we move on to, sure, to next week's movie sure, then, so you don't have to think about this any longer? <laughs> I don't want to hurt your feelings, Doctor. I'm trying to put on it's a not good like show I like for this you. movie. You know very well the reason I chose this movie. It was not because I thought it was good. You're just like, well, don't tell me it. you're having a bad time. <laughs> I'm not. Right. I, I, I'm enjoying this. I, absolutely. So next week's movie is uh, well, let's hope it's for a good reason but next week's movie is a murph pick so he's got a couple hints for me that he's going to read off as i try to guess next next week's movie and then by the end of it you'll know what we'll be doing on our next episode so murph take it away what are, what are we calling this segment now it doesn't have a name we're just describing <laughs> what it is named guess that movie segment yeah. it's time to play guess that movie okay um <laughs> Let's see. I'm trying to figure out which one I should go for first. Uh, what would be the most vague? You have an encyclopedic knowledge half the time, so I've got a really... Okay, this, this is good enough. It's sort of a sequel. Sort of a sequel. Yes. Okay. Oh, here. Hold, That's hold, interesting. Hold, hold, hold. Hint number one. It's <laughs> sort of a sequel. Hint number one, sort of a sequel. Okay, um, I'm probably not going to guess on this alone because uh, there's a lot, I think, that could be described as sort of a sequel. So I'll wait until hint number two to see what that gives me. Hint number two. Gareth Von Kallenbeck of Film Threat said this in his review. Audiences should demand this film be buried. Never to see the light of day again. Uh, what was the, what was the Atari game that got buried out in the desert? ET extraterrestrial, seven hundred and twenty-eight thousand copies. Is it ET two? Is this movie ET two? It's it's a video recording of someone playing the unreleased Atari cartridge of ET two shortly before they offed themselves. Stared forlornly into the ground. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't have a guess on this. Um, now I know that it's one sort of a sequel and two apparently terrible. So <laughs> I haven't seen it, so I actually don't know. Yeah, I said apparently, um, but we'll find out. I'll sure, ask sure. for hint number three now. Okay, hint number three. It was included in a Warner Brothers DVD four-pack alongside Gothica, Ghost Ship, and Dreamcatcher. Yes. <laughs> You're really getting into the heart of the type of movie I like, <laughs> if nothing else. Um, sort of a sequel. Okay, and I'm guessing like early 2000s supernatural horror. Um, I have seen Dreamcatcher. That's more dark fantasy than horror. Uh, it's also bizarre. 
and features the single worst Morgan Freeman performance I have ever seen. <laughs> he is the worst part of that movie by a lot. It's rough. Anyway. Worse um, than Along Came a Spider? Yeah, he's actually not bad as Alex Cross. Like, those movies are bad, but I don't think he does a bad job in them. Oh, wait, wait. Dreamcatcher, he's Along, the came worst a, part. Along Came a Spider is known for the, um, the CGI, the car crash yes. at the beginning, yeah, yeah, right? That yeah, that is awful. Um, so Water anyway, physics. I'm assuming it's not Along Came a Spider, although no. <laughs> thematically, yeah, I could see why that would be packaged. Is that um, on your list? It might be. Those movies are super forgotten. Um, That's true. So let's see. So I'm thinking early 2000s, sort of a sequel, a very bad Right now, I've still got nothing, so I'm going to ask for hint number four. Okay, this is this is where they start to get a little more specific, so mm-hmm. I'm trying to figure out which one I want to use. All right, you've given me three really good hints so far. I actually, like, the last one is a fantastic hint. <laughs> um, let's see. Uh... It was this Australian director's last wide theatrical release before his shift to television. Ooh. I don't think that helps at all, to tell you the <laughs> truth. That's a good hint for. Um, okay. I'm trying to think, like, I mean, even, like, Australian directors don't even come to mind. Like, is Roger Spottiswood Australian? I don't think he would have done a movie like that. God, I don't know. Um not that I'd be able to tell you a list of Roger Spottiswood movies off of the top of my head anyway. So let's go for hit number five. Okay. <clears throat> the film was adapted from an Anne Rice novel. Oh, okay. I know exactly what this is because I'm pretty sure I, this is a movie I've seen like 10 times. This is Aaliyah's Queen of the Damned. It is. Yes, yeah. Damn <laughs> it, I, like, they, they all started to get too specific. No, uh, well, you chose a movie that I've legitimately seen like I, like eight to ten times. Oh, God. Like, I am very happy we're going to be talking about this on this show because I've been waiting for this episode. Uh, but yeah, if you've never <laughs> seen this before, prepare yourself. I wish the audience could see how excited yeah. you are. In the- I am so happy. <laughs> <laughs> I finally get to talk about this movie at length because nothing in it makes any sense in terms of conception like (laughs) i I have not seen it i'm so excited you know how like when you see a movie and you're like wow everybody like who wrote and directed this was on a ton of cocaine (laughs) i can't even tell you what drugs they were on they were just making choices at random and it is is this like future ms ms what is it mystery science theater material here or no no, it's not bad. Like, oh, okay, that's okay, the thing. Okay. Like, it's, like, I mean, it's not good, but like, <laughs> I don't think it's that bad either. It's just that like, it's just insane to me that this movie even exists. So anyway, uh, next week we'll be talking about Queen of the Damned. Should, should I um, should I list the rest of my hints? Yeah, you should give off the rest of the hints just for funsies. Sure. Okay. So the the last four were um, new metal soundtrack. Yep, that would have given it away to me. Yeah, uh, exactly. And Jonathan Davis from Corn uh, writing but not performing most of the songs. Yes. <laughs> um, male lead is a recast of the main character. Yep. Uh, and I also had he starred alongside Sean Connery in a similarly themed film the following year. Uh, oh, right. Yep. Mm-hmm. I saw that movie in theaters, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> I watched Sean Connery's career die in real time. <laughs> we love the movies. They're <laughs> just such a movie. Uh, nice. Female lead received a posthumous BET Best Actress nomination for her mm-hmm. performance in this film. All right. Uh, 
Underworld, this this was going to be my obvious hint. Uh, yeah. Underworld, the crow, and Van Helsing have a weird child that only listens to corn and works at Hot Topic. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, this is... Uh... I'm really excited for you to watch this movie because I think your reactions <laughs> are going to be just bewildered. They're going to be genuine. I'll try to watch yeah. it as close to when we actually record as possible. So everything is still fresh. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be hard to forget a lot of the details. I'll tell you that, mm. um, you know, in suicide squad, when Cara Delevingne's doing the weird, like dance movement <laughs> sort of thing. Like if you imagine, I've tried okay, so, so hard she's to trying forget to copy movie. Aaliyah in queen of the damn. Really? That is, yeah, that is one thing that I will tell you right away. Like it's, so it like, is, it is movie, apparent when watching that movie that that is where she's taking direct inspiration from. I will say about Queen of the Damned that this will be a, my final pitch for next week's episode. This sure. movie directly influenced Suicide Squad. Oh, goody. Get ready. Oh, anyway, goody. we'll be back next week with another <laughs> uh, mediocre or forgotten. I don't know, because I sure have never forgotten this movie. <laughs> and mediocre, well, it's that brilliant means something in its else. own way. <laughs> but next week, we'll be talking about Queen of the Damned. This week, we talked about the Chernobyl Diaries. Uh, you can still watch that on Netflix. You can watch the Chernobyl miniseries on HBO Go and, you know, by piracy. <laughs> so, um, either one of those, I think, is a perfectly fair and definitely legal option. But for Murph, I'm Tucker. This has been That Was Okay, I Guess.